This is uh, the end of these big stories that um, are difficult to understand. You know, as we say each week, you know, Adam and Eve and a talking snake and, you know, the world created in six 24-hour periods and all of those things that, that seem to dog so many people because we don't look more deeply at the words and their context and their meaning. But um, next week, what we're going to do is we're going to give over some of the morning to just asking questions because I know that loads of questions have been thrown up. Um, I hope lots of insight has been shared, but loads of questions have been thrown up. So we're going to talk about Abraham a little bit, who's the first piece of history in the Bible. That's the important thing. Chapters 1 to 11 are what are often called prehistory stories. They're stories, they're legends. Um, But at chapter 12, history kicks in. Abraham, we know from all sorts of external sources, as well as the way the text is written, the way that text is written, this is history, this happened. Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus in the Middle Bronze Age. And uh, the history of Israel is tracked on through. So the Bible moves from prehistory, primeval stories, great legends and myths with deep meanings into actual historical stuff. And um, what we've done over the last few weeks, just as well, as a bit of an introduction, is we've looked at loads of these. I mean, we've not actually seen these things. These are in the British Museum. But we've looked at a a legend which is called Enuma Elis, um, the Babylonian creation myth, which is a much older creation story than the creation story that we have in Genesis. The creation story we have in Genesis... Uh, uh, was written down about 500, actually written down about 500 years before Jesus was born. Of course, it dates way, way back because people didn't write stuff down. They were passed on by storytellers. Um, uh, uh, they were passed on you know, generation to generation to generation. So the story is about 1,000 years older than that, at least we know. And it exists in lots of different forms, we know, but it hits Genesis 1 in a particular form. But it itself, as we discovered, is, is a response to a much more ancient creation story, which is called Enuma Elish simply because they're the words it begins with. It was written in uh, cuneiform, Akkadian is the language, and uh, Enuma Elish, same first words, it means when on high. And it's a story very much like the Genesis story, but the Genesis writer is ripping it off, as we've discovered. You know, what they're doing is they're taking this well-known story that all the peoples of of that era and that um, region would have known because Babylon was the superior, um, you know, they were the superpower, as you know, the Babylonians. They're great cities, and the city of Babylon at the center of the, all this, they were the mega power of the day, and their stories got told, and their stories were known. But what happens is the guy that writes Genesis takes this story and he subverts it. He writes enough of it so you know it's the same story. And then he subverts it. So to understand Genesis 1, really, you've got to understand this story first because it's only when you know that story that you can go, ha-ha, 
That's the purpose of Genesis 1. They're subverting the story to get across some greater ethics and deeper morals, a bigger meaning, a more generous story, a more open story. That's what it's about. And um, those tablets, by the way, in in case you weren't there, you can listen to all this, as uh, Dan said, but they're in the British Museum um, with lots and lots and lots and lots of others. Um, And then... Uh, Last week, uh, we looked at this bit, also in the British Museum, and this is uh, from what's called Tablet 11 of the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh is a much older flood story than the flood story of Noah that's in the Bible. So Gilgamesh is the hero of a different flood story, and we learn that there are loads of flood stories, about 25, 26 flood stories in the world from different civilizations, and they're all kind of similar, but they all vary in little details and of course the names of the heroes change all the time and again we looked at the epic of Gilgamesh or the bit of it that's about flood because it's a big long old thing and then we said so this is what it's saying so what's the point of this Genesis writer writing down a story everyone already knew and changing it and you get these foundational statements on which all the history of the Bible is based, if um, that makes any sense. Well, today, this story that's been read to us is an interesting one. For a start, it's only nine verses long. The flood story is three chapters long. It goes on forever. This is nine uh, verses, little verses long. And it's a story about something we've all heard of, the Tower of Babel, this tower that was built out of bricks. And then God comes down on earth and he's really upset about this tower being built and he confuses everybody and he scatters everybody and he gives them different languages boom boom, abracadabra all of a sudden they're all talking different languages and they can't communicate with each other anymore and we all go what a silly story that is and if it's true then God's really mean and all of our all of our international global problems where because the Americans different language to the Russians and the nuance is lost and we don't understand the, same, the culture of the Saudi Arabians. Look at what has happened to our world because of this confusion and there it all was caused by God by some magic trick because he got upset by the building of a tower. So we need to uh, look more deeply. Now this is going to be relevant to the story. It's a fantastic story actually. Uh, This is going to be relevant to the story. This is a strange map that I found. It's really good. It's the clearest one I could find. But it's got Saudi Arabia. This is a a map of the ancient Near East. But someone got really confused and wrote Saudi Arabia on it. (laughs) You know, as well. Which, uh, slight, slight. um, uh, Saudi Arabia didn't come into existence until pretty recently. But here is uh, the ancient Near East. And the important bit is the green bit and the yellow bit. The yellow bit is hot, it's dry, it's dusty. That's, uh, there's not much water. And the green bit, the fertile region of early agriculture, it says there, that's lowlands. Can you see the river Euphrates uh, that runs all, all the way through it and the Tigris which runs through it and that's where Babylon and Mesopotamia and Summer and etc etc are and that's where Babylon is right on the river Euphrates can you see it right on the river Euphrates remember last week I said 
we said that we all know now there was never a worldwide flood. There were local floods, but if you believe the earth is flat, because everybody did, because they couldn't know it was round, because they couldn't send satellites up, etc., etc. If you know the earth is flat and everything you can see one way or the other is flooded, you assume everything's flooded, don't you? But we know, if you were here last week, that because of um, archaeological digs and digging through uh, the soil, that there was never a big flood in Palestine and that area. It's hot, it's dry, it's dusty. But we know that Mesopotamia had frequent floods because it's two, between two great rivers. In fact, that's what the name Mesopotamia means, to say again, between, land between two rivers. It's a low-lying plain. It often floods. It's very fertile. That's why it's considered the birthplace of human civilization. And um, floods happened often. And we know that this story, the Gilgamesh story, comes from Mesopotamia. It's an ancient story, but it's taken by the writers of Genesis, and they do these extraordinary things with it. So that is where Mesopotamia, stroke Babylon, uh, stroke Sumer was. These are different cultures that ran the, that part of the world, superpowers at different times. Assyria took over. There's their capital city, Nineveh, up the top, where all, where all of these documents were found. All the take clay tablets I just showed you were found in Nineveh. This is what it looks like today. So this is where Babylon um, and Assyria were. That whole area is now Iraq. It's bits of Syria, and though you can't see it, the country above is Turkey. So it's a bit of Turkey, it's Syria, it's Iraq, it's a bit of Iran. And that's where Babylon was. That's where Assyria was. It, it, the same area called different names depending on who was the superpower of the time. Yeah? So, here's the interesting thing about the story of Babel. People, uh, somebody said to me, you keep saying all these stories are just myth and legend. We, we said last week that myth and legend is an important story. It's not that it's a stupid story. It's a great story with a deep meaning. Like Animal Farm, we said last week. Animal Farm is a fantastic story with deep meaning for our culture. But it doesn't mean some animals actually took over a farm but we can learn great truths from it. But here's the funny thing that some of you aren't expecting me to say. The story of the Tower of Babel isn't a legend. It actually happened. But not quite as we have it written down. It's partly fact and partly political commentary, but it's not a legend. It actually happened. There actually was a Tower of Babel. It was actually built high to the sky for those days. Not quite as high as the Shard, but it was built high. It did employ the greatest technology of the day. There was a Tower of Babel. The story we've just read, the little saga in nine verses, is actually a piece, piece of political and religious satire. It's a joke. And everybody who first heard this story, because they would have heard it before it was written down, you know, it was passed on. Everybody who first heard this story would have laughed. 
I'll explain to you why they would laugh. You probably still won't laugh because we're being very serious. But it's fun. It's a fun story, with a, and it, but it packs a huge political punch. So it's picking up on something historical, and it packs a political punch, and it sets the opportunity to move from prehistorical stuff, myths and legends with deep meanings, to the next story, Genesis 12, which is the story of a bloke called Abraham. Abraham, by the way, if we go back, I hope this is on here. Whoops. He was born, ah, there he is. He, Abraham was born in the Persian Gulf. Can you see the city of Ur? Abraham actually came from Ur. So he, and, and he headed out towards um, the promised land, towards what would become Israel. And so he traveled across Mesopotamia. He was from Mesopotamia. He was from the fertile lands. And remember last week, those of you who were here, I said, how did they get the story of Noah and the ark, for instance, or the story that formed Genesis 1, the poem, or the story, different story of Adam and Eve and the fruit? Um, and these are all stories that came from these ancient tablets in Mesopotamia. But that's where Abraham came from. And he traveled, all the scholars think, with these stories that he'd learned. We'll discover that next week. Um, though most of it will be for questions, as I say. He traveled with these stories and he retold the stories, but he and others, scholars believe, adapted and changed them to teach a deeper truth. So, Here's this guy. I'm sure you recognize him <laughs> from his photo. <laughs> he's called Herodotus. Herodotus, uh, he, he, he didn't live through any of this. He's Roman and he lived in the 5th century, do you know, after Jesus. Herodotus, famous uh, historian actually, and there's a little bit of his writing. And Herodotus, um, he, um, he went to... Babylon, and he saw and writes about the things, he writes about the Tower of Babel. So he went there, checked it out, looked around, measured it, wrote it down. Okay, so that's how we know, uh, we know that uh, this, uh, this all happened. Here's a funny word, ziggurat. Ziggurats were really important in Babylonian society. They were like um, cathedrals. And a ziggurat looked like this. In fact, that's an artist impression based on the writings of Herodotus of the ziggurat in Babylon. Babylon was the capital city of this giant superpower. There it is. It's a man-made mountain. And um, I, I'll, I'll give you some of uh, the facts. I wrote them down on a piece of paper because I knew I wouldn't be able to remember them all. And, of course, I've lost the piece of paper. So I will do it uh, from, from memory. Um, Herodotus tells us this. Um, no, it's, it's fine, Dan. I, I think I know. Herodotus tells us this, that this ziggurat, um, ziggurats were built all around Babylon. They, they, they were 
as I say, kind of cathedrals. And, and Herodotus tells us that the ziggurat in Babylon, the city at the center of the great empire, had seven stories. Count them on there. And at the bottom, there was a temple, a sanctuary, and at the top, there was another sanctuary. And all the layers in between, can you see all the stairs going up and down? The stairs going up and down are really important because this is a man-made mountain. Now, it's, they're all built, we, we've discovered 25 of them, like I say, or the remains or the set out of them uh, around Mesopotamia. And they, they were all built in the valley. Remember, it's low, it's wet. And they are man-made mountains because people used to believe if you went up a mountain, you'd get closer to the gods. But the problem with living in Mesopotamia was there were no mountains. So you had to build one. Because if you could get up the mountain, you'd get closer to God. So you built a sanctuary at the bottom to prepare yourself. Then you went up all the stairs and you met the God at the top. Nice. Do you see? That's the way it was. As I say, there were ziggurats all across um, at the area. But we know from uh, Herodotus that there was a huge ziggurat in Babylon. And um, it went with one of these. An S, how would you say that? You're right. There you are. <laughs> so it's a temple. So here is, this isn't a photograph, of course. Okay, this isn't, a, can you see the ziggurat up there? And there's the temple. This is Babylon. You see, and this is the river Euphrates, and this is the center of Babylon. And because of all the archaeological digs, we know this is what it looked like. There's the temple, as high a tower as you can get, seven stories. I'll tell you why it was only seven stories in a moment. Uh, there's, there's the ziggurat, there's the temple, and down here um, is the royal palace. Now, back to Enuma Elish. I promise this gets... Um, much more practical in a minute, but you've got to understand this, this stuff to understand the story. As you know, in Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation myth, the gods make the universe. You have to re uh, listen to week one if you don't know. And the gods make the universe, having had a huge fight with one another because they don't like one another. And Marduk slaughters his mother and he, he rips her apart in this mythological story and he splays out our innards and that's what forms the universe the gap between the waters above and the waters beneath are actually the innards of his murdered mother and he because he's murdered his evil mother is proclaimed by all the other gods the king gods Marduk the king of Babylon he is the king of Babylon, and Enuma Elish says, and the gods made a man in the image of Marduk, the god of Babylon, and he is the king of Babylon. So the Bible says in Genesis 1, we're all made in God's image. There's no, there's no, it's, everything's democratized. There's no hierarchy. There's no one who's more important than anyone else. We'll return to that. We're all the same. God made male and female, every single one of us in God's image. Equality is on the first page of the first story in the first book of the Bible. Equality, inclusion for everyone. No one gets left out. That's why we do inclusion, because it's on the first page of the Bible. It's an important story. But 
that's not what this is about. This is about exclusion. There's all the people living around. Then you get this huge compound and you get the mountain to go up to God and meet with God. Got the God Marduk, the God of Babylon, whose physical representation on earth lives in that big house next door, the palace, and all the priests hang out in the temple. That's how it worked. Got it? So this is Babylon. Now, here's a funny thing. Babel is Babylon. But it's written by a Jew, this story. And if you, if you, um, if you spell Babylon in Akkadian and rearrange two of the letters, you lose Babylon and you get to Babel. Right? It doesn't work in English because, you know, they would speak, they would, their language is cuneiform, you know, lots of... But if you, if you do a wordplay and you rearrange the letters of Babylon, you get to Babel. And Babel, as you know, means Babel. We've still got it in our language. What does Babel mean? Babel means unintelligible wittering, doesn't it? Someone who babbles is someone who just goes on and on and on and on and their, their language has no meaning. So the writer of this is talking about Babylon and they're talking about this famous tower. Everyone knows there's a tower in Babylon. Everyone knows it's the tower you go up to get to the god Marduk. Everyone knows that there's this enclosure where the king lives and only the king is made in the image of of the god Marduk everyone knows that everyone who lives around they're just rubbish they don't count they have no they they're not representatives of god they're slaves there's hierarchy at the heart of the superpower of the age the guy who lives in the big i was going to say the big white house is god The guy who lives in the big white house is God and he's got a tower to um, Marduk, the God. And everyone else, no one else matters. That is the historical bit of all of this. But it's the word Babylon means gate of the God. Now, it's on the river Euphrates and there's a gate into the city there. And actually, if you could see a wider uh, span of this, there's lots of gates into the city from the river. So there's lots of gates to get into Babylon. But the ziggurat is the gate of the God. Babylon is a gate of the God. It was actually called in Babylonian literature the navel of the the earth. It was a gateway, a portal. It was a bridge to God. Babylon existed, so everyone said, as a gateway to God, to know the gods, the god Marduk. But the gateway to the god was in the king's garden, because only the king had a gateway to God. Does that make sense? Now, here's an interesting thing about the language, and then I'll tell you what all this means. You know this story, which is in Genesis chapter 11, tells us that all the languages were confused when God came down and he looked at all of this. The God, you know, the God of heaven and earth. Well, in chapter 10, 
the chapter before chapter 11, state the blindedly obvious, let me just read you three verses about the sons of the sons of Noah. Uh, it says about his first son, he, he, uh, you can read, if it's called the Table of Nations, read it later. Three times it tells us this about Noah's three sons. It says that they spread out into their territories by their clans, with their nations, each with their own language. In chapter 10. And it tells you that about each of the sons. So uh, here is the, um, here's the words written about Ham. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and their nations. So in chapter 10, they've already got loads of languages and they've spread out and they've got territories and they've already sp scattered to the nations. And then in chapter 10 again, it says this. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and their languages in their territories in their nations. So chapter 10 tells us there are loads of languages and people have spread out everywhere and they've inhabited load, lots of nations. And then this story happens in chapter 11, which says, which begins by saying, now the whole world had one language and one common speech. But the last chapter has just told you there were lots of languages all around the world, which is back to what another principle we learned. Do you remember we said that these first five books of the Bible, sometimes known as the Pentateuch, by Jews known as the Torah, are actually edited together, edited together stories? They were all verbally passed on. They were all different. They clashed with one another. Yeah, there are contradictions in them. Some people still argue there are no contradictions in the Bible. We'll try this one for size. The contradiction between Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11. Chapter 10, which tells you there are loads of languages and loads of nations and loads of cultures. And chapter 11, that having told you that, goes on to say, now the whole world spoke one language. This is a story that had been passed on verbally and the editor that put all of this together, you have to listen to one of the other uh, recordings to find out about how this happened, they push them together and they don't always, well they know their stories put together, so it's not, they're not trying to unify them. There is a big clash as we found out between the order of creation in Genesis chapter 1 and the order of creation in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, it's different. But it's not that it was a mistake made or some contradiction that proves it's not true. The truth is that these were stories that were known. Everyone knew these stories and they know that the writers are just putting them in there and they're, they're subverting them all to make, story, to make their point. So everyone knows that there's this huge tower in Babylon Everyone knows that it's the superpower of the day. Everyone knows that the myth is that only the king is in God's image and the God is called Marduk and he protects Babylon and he despises everyone else. Everyone knows all that stuff. And so there's this story that gets put in, this prehistory story. And it says uh, simply this. It says, it says, now they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Why did they say that? Because in uh, Palestine, which is hot and hilly and high, they always built with stone and mortar. You wouldn't build with a brick. So the story is saying they wanted to build this great temple to their God, a fantastic tower, and all they had was bricks. 
And everyone would have gone, ha, 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 how daft is that? In Palestine, we've got stones and we build high and nothing falls down. There by a river, it's hot, it's humid, it's low-lying, and they've only got bricks. And everybody knew that bricks didn't last long because bricks were actually sun-dried, baked in the mud. They were of mud and clay. They were, they were, they were sun-dried because they didn't have kilns. And, uh, the, the, and everyone knew that Babylonian buildings kept falling down because of the humidity. You know, when, you've, when your house is made of, of dried, sun-baked mud and it rains a lot, you're in trouble. Do you see? Everybody knows this. But the latest technology that we know... Uh, we know that the Babylonians had just come up with was bitumen. And they'd, they'd learned how to create ovens and they baked their bricks harder. Because if you bake a brick in the oven, the mud in the oven, it gets harder and stronger. But it still was pervious and it would still get smashed by the river and the rain. So instead of using cement like the Palestinians did like the people of Israel did, they used bitumen because that was a way of trying to make them as slightly stronger and slightly more waterproof. None of this exists anymore. It doesn't exist. You can see the outline of it if you go to the river Euphrates, but it doesn't exist anymore. By Jesus' day, it was a bit of a ruin. When Herodias uh, uh, went, uh, went to see it, it was a ruin. Why doesn't it exist? Because it was built of bricks. And the writer, the, 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 the Israelite writer, he goes, they're the superpower of the day and they built it with bricks and bitumen. That's what he's saying. It's a joke. They built it with bricks. And after they built it with these rotten bricks that fall apart, ha, in Palestine we would have done it with stone. When they built their flimsy tower to their silly god Marduk, inside the king's palace with their bricks. They called it the Tower of Babel. Play on words. Babylon, Babel. Babylon meaning meaningless babble. It's a tower built to meaningless babble. Because they turn up with their hierarchy and they turn up with their kings and they turn up with their robes and they build seven stories high and they think that they can get up some brick-made mountain to God because they don't understand that God's always with us. And that's why it says in the story, and God came and he walked amongst them. It, does, it purposely says God came and walked amongst them. He didn't come down the steps. That's what he's saying. These Babylonians, in their culture of meaningless babble, have built this huge tower with lots of steps available for the god Marduk to come down. He's never shown up. He doesn't exist. But the God of heaven and earth, who is love and on our side, comes down and he doesn't use the steps. Because he's with us all the time. He's on our side. He's always there. They built sky high, but it didn't work. One last thing, then I've finished. This is the name for Adam in Genesis 1. You probably know that Adam isn't a name at all. I mean, it is now, if you're called Adam. What a wonderful name, you know. But Adam just meant human. It meant man, as opposed to Eve. Har Adam meant the human. So when we say that in the, uh, in the Genesis 2 story, Adam and Eve, it's just saying first man, first woman. 
and not names. It's just first man, first woman in that story. Her Adam. And Adam, Adam, uh, means from dust, man from dust. Because in the story, God takes the clay and makes the man. And in this story, when it's talking about man, it purposely uses the term Adam again. And what it's saying is, your whole thing is about dust. You build your temple out of mud and dust, and it all comes collapsing down. And your, your whole civilization is built out of dust. It's nothing. It's out of dust. And the story is saying this. When in your vanity you try to build a strong tower, and when you come with your pomp, and when you come with your ceremony, and when you come with your robes, and when you come with your titles, and when you come with your dinners, and when you come with your receptions, and when you come with those invitations that only the rich and popular can get in at, and when you come with your banks, and when you come with your giant buildings that are supposed to exalt your technology, the God of all heaven and earth despises it all. And he comes down and he walks with the ordinary people. And he takes all of this pomp and ceremony and hierarchy and arrangement and exclusion and he throws confusion into the whole thing. It will always fail. It will always confuse. That is what this story is about. It's designed to make the reader or the person who heard it laugh that the superpower is just a pile of meaningless babble and it's built out of dirt and however high it tries to build itself it's not the main deal and it teaches again one last time before history starts that God is on the side of ordinary people. You may not get recognized. You might not get an MBE, an OBE, a knighthood. You might not get invited to number 10 Downing Street. You might not hang around with the powerful people. We might never get on question time. We might never be asked our opinion. We might never, we might not be those they close the streets for or put in smart cars. We may not have the right clothing, the right suits, the right salaries. We may not be in the corridors of power. But this story is is saying all of that in the end is crap. It's dust, it's mud, it falls apart. The tower was built and it fell down. Um, the story never tells you, does it, that Babylon became the superpower, the mighty superpower, nor does it tell you that the tower is the famous temple, worldwide famed temple to the god Marduk. By the time that they, the scholars think, by the time that the visitor who writes this story, actually visited this site, it had already fallen apart, which is why he says, and God came down and confused them and they stopped building. What it's saying is, it all just fell apart. And what the story is saying to me and to you is build your life on something meaningful, deep, worthwhile. Give your life to something more than craving medals. Give your life to something more than seeking to be in the right rooms with the right people. You know those kind of people, like, I'm sure you've been with people like that, even if you're at a party, they're talking to you, but they're always looking over your shoulder because they're waiting to see if something, somebody more popular or important walks into the room and then they're away. What this story is teaching us is the principle of life is that God's on the side of the ordinary, the poor, the despised, the passed over. 
those who nobody cares about. God's on the side of those people, and if we are going to be representatives of him, and we are all are representatives of him, remember, you've had, uh, Revel uh, you've had Genesis 1, we are all made in God's image, we are all his representatives. Don't be like this stupid king, it's saying. Get with the real agenda, and give your life to something that matters. I close by telling you a short story. I used to uh, present for a while. Uh, I used to present for BBC One, and I used to go places. I talked about hierarchy and all that. I used to say, uh, people used to say, what do you do? And in my spare time, I used to, they'd see me on telly. I used to be, this was in the last millennium. It was before the turn of the century. I used, I used to be this um, BBC One presenter, and people used to say, and who, well, which program do you present? And I used to say, songs of praise. <laughs> it was a kind of complete downer. Do you know when you're, I present for BBC One. Do you mean Top Gear? No, songs of praise. You know, not so much hip and trendy as hip and replacement, really. But they kind of, <laughs> so used to this show. Anyway, the funny thing about it, it's a long time ago, um, Harry Seacombe, you know Sir Harry Seacombe? Uh, you know, famous Sir Harry? He used to be a presenter too. And, um, and, he, he told me this story. I, I wasn't there at the time. He told me this story that he went to present uh, Songs of Praise. And yet part of it is you have to interview people. And he was with this bishop. I won't tell you the name of the bishop. He's with this bishop. This, and he sits down. They set up this, the cameras and you sat there. And Harry is by then Sir Harry Seacombe. And Harry Seacombe says to the bishop, um, uh, uh, what can I call you? You know, can I call you Robert, David, you know, something like that? What can I call you? Uh, should I call you by your first name? Should I call you Bishop? What shall I call you? And Harry said, and the bishop said to me, you may call me your grace. And Harry Seacom said to me, and some others were there, and I said to him, and you can call me sir. <laughs> This story is saying, give up your pomp, roll up your sleeves, get involved, get involved and give your life in serving others. And it forms the last story as we begin to move into the history of Israel that's built on these fantastic principles that thousands of years later are still not honored in this city. Thank you.